Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 23 of Spielvogel, An Age of Modernity, Anxiety, and Imperialism. And this podcast is just that. It is all about modernity, anxiety, and imperialism. Mostly anxiety. Mostly anxiety. Um, there is a lot of fear going on right now in Europe as the sort of underwinds of... Um, of World War One taking place, and sort of as we set up for it, a lot of people start to see a lot of um, of the potential problems of European history. And after World War One, a lot of those problems are going to be brought to light, and a lot of their predictions about uh, you know society maybe not always progressing in the best way, and maybe society potentially destroying itself. Um, you know, they become serious questions after World War One, and even serious questions now. Um, you'll also notice for this podcast, um, I'm going to try to divide up based on topic instead of one giant podcast, and we'll see how that works. I hope maybe it makes the viewing experience a little easier, and if you have one specific section you're struggling with, maybe you can jump right to there. Um, so anyway, let's jump right into the scientific advances for this time period. Um, these new discoveries um, are very complex, and they're very difficult for society to understand. And so when I talk about them, remember that, first of all, you don't have to understand them. This is a European history course. You just have to understand what they mean. Um, and also that a lot of a lot of people at this time period also don't know what they mean. And so essentially what that means is that um, you know, people have a lot of anxiety about what they don't understand, and thus, during this time period, um, despite not knowing what they don't know, it, they're still getting a lot of anxiety because of the challenges, mostly to Newtonian physics and Newtonian ideas. Um, essentially, Newtonian physics and, uh, sort of the mechanics of the universe that pop up around Newton are that the universe is very simple and basic to understand, and that if you understand, uh, you know, the rules and the systems that the universe is built on, mostly atoms, uh, if you understand those basic concepts, you can apply them to all of science and all of history, and sort of just being able to understand, you know, one section of science is going to massively encourage you and massively help you, because you can apply that to pretty much all other areas of science. Our scientists from this era sort of prove that wrong, and that the the universe is not so simple, and it's not so orderly, and it's not so nice. And so our first person is Marie Curie. She discovers radium, which is radioactive. Um, it being radioactive, it does actually kill the Curies. Um, they are exposed uh, to the radioactive exp or radioactive um, element, and so they actually die of radiation poisoning, which is very unfortunate. But it ultimately it does show that the universe is kind of random. Radiation and radiation poisoning are scary, uh, for one thing, <laughs> and they are also are they are also random and uncontrollable and very difficult to understand, especially if you're a poor middle class or uh, lower middle class, um, you know, person in the 20th century. And so ultimately, while a lot of people don't understand what radiation is at this time, and probably not even in our modern time, it does show that this idea that the atoms are the building block of society isn't always true, and that a lot of uh, elements that are radioactive are probably better thought of as animals that can actually hurt you and sort of live and breathe like an organism without actually 
being alive. And so that sort of breaks down the Newtonian physics right there. Then we have Planck. He develops this idea that energy is radiated radiated unevenly when it's dispersed. And this creates his quantum theory, but more seriously, it questions the, Newton the Newtonian physics and this idea that the universe is nice and orderly and applies to this region, or this reason. And so things happening randomly or not really being able to be explained so nicely creates a lot of anxiety among people as well. And then, of course, most famously, Einstein's theory on, relativ on relativity creates a panic in the public as well. You know it as E equals mc squared. Uh, it links space and time. And it's pretty confusing, frankly. I don't understand it. And frankly, it's not my job to understand it. <laughs> um, frankly, yeah. I mean, it creates a lot of confusion in the public and the scientific community. It's it's proven years after Einstein comes up with it, um, but it links the energy of particles to particles themselves, creates a lot of theories for nuclear fusion and nuclear fission, which is going to become very relevant with the creation of the nuclear bomb. Um, but just note that right now, Einstein's theory on relativity is very confusing. It makes a lot of people question reality, and it makes a lot of people worry and anxious about how much of science do you actually understand? And this, these ideas sort of are prevalent in this understanding the irrational. Um, these intellectuals, they come up and they oppose the idea that um, pro progress and reason is always going to be good and that progress is always going to create a better generation for the next one. Uh, this is mostly seen in Nietzsche. He uh, pretty much advocates for chaos and freedom. He uh, condemns a lot of things like democracy. He's basically an anarchist, is the best way to think about him. And uh, he essentially says that humans are at the, at the mercy of irrational forces, that humanity, humankind, uh, human, like the human brain itself, and the universe itself is not rational, that things are entirely random. We cannot control things. Frankly, you can't control yourself. And, um, these intellectuals, they attack this idea that, um, you know, Europeans have had for a long time since the Renaissance that, uh, you know, Europe will always get better, that new inventions will always improve life, and that uh, life will always get better the longer you live and the longer humanity goes on for. Things will get better. And this is sort of more profound and more uh, generally seen after World War One, when people realize, oh my god, we completely destroyed, we nearly completely destroyed humanity. Uh, you know, so many people died for absolutely no reason. How could we do this to ourselves? We're monsters. Um, but even, even now you start to see this picking up steam of beginning to question whether or not society should continue to progress and whether or not society is actually good, whether or not humanity is rational. And then that is questioned uh, even more so by uh, Sigmund Freud, who develops the Oedipus uh, complex. Um, but he also develops this idea of the id, ego, and superego. And I'm not going to talk about the Oedipus complex because it's weird and disproven. Um, but I am going to talk about the id, ego, and superego, and this idea that your unconscious mind is not the same as you. So essentially, Freud develops this idea, uh, the psychoanalysis way, uh, that challenges the idea that the human mind is rational, 
and that humans in general are rational. He says that humans are controlled by previous experiences and the past and outside forces, um, and that your inner life, or your id, ego, and superego, or your unconscious mind, basically control you. That you are not really a rational figure, that you're just basing off, or basing your ideas and your statistics and your, uh, you know, philosophy off of what's already been taught to you and what you've already experienced in life. And although many of his ideas are disproven today, um, his general sort of trend of like questioning the human mind and questioning, uh, like how reasonable are we as a species is very significant. Uh, in addition to this, uh, I'm going to build off of what we talked about, I believe, maybe one chapter ago, maybe two chapters ago, with Darwin and his theory of evolution. Um, Herbert Spencer applies Darwin's theory of evolution to um, humanity as a whole and to countries. And this is called social Darwinism. Essentially, it questions, it sort of proposes that societies model uh, change off of evolution and that they grow in the same way a living organism would also develop. And so societies are essentially at this constant friction with each other. That society is always fighting against each other, different countries, different religions, different ethnicities, different people. They're always rubbing up against each other and that produces, uh, you know, a lot of chaos and that produces a lot of death and, um, you know, genocide. But it also uh, creates a lot of good if you're able to survive that. And so um, essentially what Spencer says here is that evolution is also applicable to politics, to science, to all these different genres, and not just uh, is, you know, not just an explanation for why animals also evolve. Extreme nationalists take social Darwinism to its greatest extreme. And this is going to surprise you. It's taken to its greatest extreme in Germany. So the German general Frederick von Bernhardi, I believe that's how you'd say it, um, develops this German Volkish thought, and he proposes that the Germans were pure, and that the Aryan race, or you know, the German people, are the best race of um, of of them all. Essentially, he ranks the Aryan race. Um, and the German people above all other people, and that, you know, essentially excuses um, imperialism and colonization and the subjugation of the other, quote, inferior people. And you're never going to guess this, but they rank the Jews as the lowest life among them. And so the general social changes of this time just sort of spring off the scientific advances and this questioning of how society evolves and how society, um, you know, develops in general. Following the scientific progress, we also have the emergence of some more anxious social changes. They're, these social changes, they're not very large, but they do reveal a larger trend that's happening within European history as we begin to see the tides changing, uh, particularly a lot of pessimistic views um, and some, some going back against the Enlightenment. Because with the Irrationalists and their attacking of this idea that progress will always be good, um, you sort of see this also general attack against the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, you know, sort of 
prophesizes that um, through liberalism, through um, these liberal ideas like free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, um, and all these, you know, generally Western traditions, if you will, uh, that society will get better. And the irrationalists, they fight against this. And so you see sort of the breakdown of the Enlightenment and a rejection in some way of the Enlightenment in a lot of states, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. And this is most uh, valuably seen in anti-Semitism and the rise of Zionism. And it kind of creates these two different worlds that Western and Central and Eastern Europe are living in, where um, you see the spectrum of beliefs, but mostly people falling on two extreme ends of the spectrum with Zionists and anti-Semites, uh, just sort of taking up the space and constantly fear-mongering about each other. So with anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism had largely, for most of European history, followed the trend of getting more and more better. You know, we started this class talking about how in the Middle Ages, people thought that the Jews were poisoning their wells, and that's how the Black Death was spread. Um, and since then, you know, things have gotten better, fortunately. <laughs> um, but for the Jews, a lot of that change comes mostly on the backs of the Enlightenment, Voltaire arguing for religious toleration, and also some of the Enlightened despots like Joseph II uh, making some reforms for the Jewish community. And so because the Enlightenment is kind of under attack at this point, you see a reversal of this. And right back to Austria, where Joseph II was, Vienna starts starts trending backwards. You know, the Catholics uh, create uh, anti-Semitic policies, and Hitler actually credits a lot of these policies uh, for inspiring his work when he eventually, you know, does, uh, the, you know, the most famous genocide of all, the Holocaust. And so... In both Austria and Germany, uh, anti-Semites, particularly Christian anti-Semites, uh, use anti-Semitism and fear-mongering about the Jews to get, win conservative votes. But this mostly dies down after 1898, as anti-Semitic parties begin to decline. However, where it does not decline is across Eastern Europe, particularly Russia. So Russian Jews, particularly in modern-day Ukraine, are forced to flee because all across Russia there are massive anti-Jewish attacks. Um, this is mostly a sort of classist thing the Jews are seen throughout most of European history. You know, the, the stereotype is that the Jews are the wealthy elite who control things, who, you know, own your debts, who own your businesses, who own, or, or basically are responsible for all of your problems, um, which I don't think I need to say this, but that's obviously not true at all. <laughs> um, but because of this, the Russians uh, begin to sack large Jewish centers of commerce and large Jewish centers of population. And a lot of Jews are forced to either flee to the United States or they're forced to flee to Palestine or Israel. Um, to be clear, uh, I am going to refer to uh, what Today, many people would refer to as Israel, or they would refer to as Palestine, or they would refer to as Israel or Palestine, um, as two separate countries. For the purposes of this podcast, and um, just, you know, just to make things easy, so we're not, uh, you know, having a debate about uh, Israel and Palestine right now, because 
I don't think I have enough time to to talk about Israel and Palestine right now. Uh, I am just going to refer to it as Palestine because the state of of Israel does not really exist, and um, the state of Palestine does exist, sort of. It's a um, Ottoman territory, so it's controlled by the Ottoman Empire, but it is a sort of like territorial area within the Ottoman Empire. And so I'm going to refer to the territory as Palestine. I don't really care what you think uh, it is. It might be Israel, might be Palestine, might be both. Um, I don't really care. Just shut up and don't comment about it. Um, we're not going to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So again, just to be clear, when I talk about Palestine, I'm referring to the area which today might be Israel, might be Palestine, might be Israel and Palestine. Um, so I'm glad that's clear. So essentially, uh, the reason a lot of these Jews flee to Palestine is because the Zionists hope to create a Jewish state. That is what Zionists, uh, you know, ultimate goal is, is creating a Jewish home state, mostly because they feel, uh, probably rightly so, that European history has generally been dominated by uh, anti-Semitic attacks against the Jewish community, and the best way to protect themselves is to both leave Europe and head to the Middle East, but also to create a state where they are the majority and are not being prosecuted. And so this does create a lot of problems because the Ottomans don't want them in that territory, and so, you know, it does it does create some tensions within the Ottoman Empire. Uh, you're going to see that in World War One, when there is a rebellion in Palestine, as the British promise Palestine independence. Um, side note, they don't get that independence, um, so that's kind of unfortunate. But, uh, you know, the Ottomans do try and persecute these Jews who are fleeing, but nonetheless, a lot of the Jews do come to the Palestinian, Palestinian area and begin to uh, settle there. And with the first Zionist Congress meeting, uh, they propose a Palestinian state, and that only increases the number of Jews going to that area. In addition to these social changes, we also have a decline in Christianity, essentially, as this idea that we are not, uh, you know, rational beings, that humanity is not destined for greatness. A lot of people begin to turn away from this um, idea of religion, and a lot of attacks against Christianity begin to take place. And in addition uh, to those sort of psychological changes within people, we have economic changes, as industrialization and urbanization increasingly exclude church life. Essentially, if you think about it, before the Industrial Revolution, you completely controlled how much you worked and how much free time you had. With industrialization and urbanization, your life is completely, uh, pretty much monitored with time. And, um, you know, when you are in a factory working, clocking in and clocking out, uh, your time is more valuable to you, and it's more clear to you uh, that every minute matters more. And so you're less likely to spend some minutes every week, going to church or praying or going and practicing at, uh, you know, you're practicing your religion because it, frankly, it costs money. It costs money to be religious in that uh, you have to give up about an hour of your time every, every week um, to devoting yourself to your religion. And that just doesn't really work when you're, you know, a poor, uh, you know, poor or middle class worker working in a factory in London or in Paris or in Berlin. So you see a real shift away from religion as less people are going to church. 
In addition to this, Catholic states also began imposing regulations and control. The French undermine religious education, and they eventually uh, separate the church and state uh, completely from each other. France becomes one of the most secular societies in France or in Europe. Um, they completely reject religion, completely, completely try and just kick out the church um, to the extent of like influencing politics or society or or economics like they used to. In addition, uh, the growing number of people who support evolution and uh, the growing number of people who support science in general also leads to a lot of skepticism and secularism. Intellects leave the church en masse, and Renan also uh, challenges the historical accuracy of the Bible, pointing to a lot of places where uh, what the Bible says and what history say are not always the same. And then there is also a larger push for the church's for the church to adopt uh, more progressive education, toleration, and liberalism as a whole. Pope Pius IX in 1864 rejects this. He does not want the church being influenced by those ideas. Uh, he also rejects modernism, uh, which essentially proposes a new way to teach the Bible, make the Bible more applicable to the everyday lives, uh, because society has changed so much over these last few years. Um, or I guess these last few decades, a lot of modernists see the Bible as being outdated, and by updating it, they think that the Bible can have uh, new value and new uh, modernity with the people and potentially spread even more within the European community. Pope Pius IX rejects that, however. Um, so when Pope Pius IX eventually dies, Pope Leo comes in, and he's a more compromising figure. He allows the teaching of evolution. He does not teach evolution as a fact, but he does teach it as a theory. So, um, you know, studying the theory of evolution and studying the fact of evolution, not quite the same thing, but education nonetheless of education, or education of evolution nonetheless is still a step uh, and a more compromise uh, for the liberals. Also. Uh, Pope Leo says that socialism is in the likeness to God. Uh, essentially, like if you think about uh, what religion actually says, the equality of people, and you take a look at what socialists uh, propose, or at least want to see society, you do see a lot of overlap with religion. And, you know, we don't really think of that now, because religion is generally a conservative force in countries, particularly the United States. Um, but at this point, both in the United States and in European history at the early, in the early 20th century, a rise of socialism is uh, sort of clouded around uh, Catholicism and religion in that people want equality, people want more liberal thoughts in the likeness of God. And so Pope Leo does sort of align himself more with the socialists. However, he does reject a lot of their more violent nature, the class warfare, the abolition of private property. Uh, in addition, Pope Leo also encourages unions, socialist parties, and helping the poor. And uh, helping the poor is seen in the creation of the Salvation Army, who, while being a religious entity, and spreading, trying to spread Catholicism to the rest of the world, they also do provide resources for the poor and humanitarian, or humanitarianism in general. And then we move on to our three uh, sort of general social changes that always take place. You see it in literature, in art, and music. 
and all three of them see significant. So jumping in with literature, we have the rise of naturalism in trying to capture real life, trying to find the best way to capture real life. So uh, this creates more realistic stories, but going along with sort of the irrationalist's uh, view of the world, there are more pessimistic ways of sort of answering these problems, in that um, they're both, yes, very realistic, but instead of heroes winning out and saving the day at the end, the hero might not get everything they want. Um, they might not conquer the social problem or the economic problem, or they might be disadvantaged just purely based on their race or their class or their gender or their sexual or their or their sex. So a lot of changes taking place, but also a pretty pessimistic view of the world coming from literature. Um, in addition to this change in literature, the second half of the 19th century is also seen as the Russian Golden Age. You probably remember two important books from this time period, War and Peace and Crime and Punishment. Uh, I'll focus in on War and Peace, although Crime and Punishment is um, an important book for European history. Essentially, War and Peace is a realistic view of the Napoleonic Wars, and, you know, coming from a Russian author, that is kind of difficult to sort of, I guess, sort of difficult to capture. Obviously, Russia is a very closed-off conservative society at this point, and so being able to publish a book about what actually happened in the Napoleonic Wars and how, you know, both the blunders and successes of uh, Russia during this time period it's kind of a big deal, and it's a more realistic view of the world and a more realistic viewing of history, which historians have generally been trying to get closer and closer to throughout European history. And then finally, we also have the rise of the symbolists. They said that the world is incomprehensible, and essentially they, they just kind of say that objective reality isn't really real. Like we, There is no objective truth to reality. There is no really one way of looking at the world that's objectively right. And this sort of follows the general scientific changes that have taken place where people, they don't really understand um, what's happening, but they do understand that a lot of people don't understand, if that makes sense. So like, um, you know, basically people don't understand these theories. They don't understand these scientific changes. Um, but in doing that and not understanding that, it creates a lot of anxiety about what else do you not know? And uh, the symbolists kind of argue this to its most extreme, that you can't really know anything. Um, and thus, you know, objective reality isn't real. Moving on to art, we also have the rise of impressionalism, which reflects on basically trying to capture the real world. Much like literature, they focus on capturing the real world at the start. However, they slowly shift away from this. So in Impressionalism, they try and capture the lives of the upper middle class. They use uh, generally bright colors, smaller scales, and smaller strokes. Um, Passaro is the founder of this. They seek to use bright light. However, the most famous author at this time period is probably Monet, um, which I'm sure everybody has heard of watching this podcast. Uh, and Monet mostly focuses on bringing out light and mostly light in color, trying to find reflections and, uh, you know, stuff like that. In addition to this, we also have Berth Mousseau. I believe it's Mousseau, although I'm not entirely sure. You know me. I don't really know uh, how to pronounce these names. <laughs> um, but she becomes the first professional woman um, to kind of puncture... The, her way into the artistic community. 
and by 1880, we sort of enter the post-impressionalism uh, era. So post-impressionalism values light and color the same way as impressionalists do. However, they also value structure and form now too, and they're less interested in capturing realistic depictions, uh, which is the first sign of modern art. Um, if you know anyone from this time period, it's probably Vincent van Gogh of, uh, you know, Starry Night fame, I guess. Uh, and if you think to Starry Night and try and picture it in your mind, you'll notice that, like, it is somewhat realistic. Like, you can tell what it is, but you also, it, it's not a perfect capturing of the night sky and, and you know, the starry night. Um, and so because of that, you sort of get that emotional feeling that Van Gogh is trying to paint. And that's what Impressionalism is all about. They're trying to capture the feeling of something instead of the actual something itself. So instead of trying to paint reality, they are trying to paint the emotion of that reality. And then we enter sort of an individual expression era. By the 1900s, uh, depicting reality was not at all of value to artists. Many of them are frankly confused about what reality is, much like our uh, you know, our authors, they sort of reject this idea that uh, there is an objective reality and that reality can be determined. And so a lot of people just sort of abandon trying to draw reality as it is and instead try and capture that feeling. In addition to this, the rise of the camera also makes drawing reality sort of not really of purpose. You know, a camera can capture reality in, you know, the blink of an eye, whereas somebody would have to draw for hours, potentially days, to try and capture a realistic view of the world. It's just not really worth it, and so trying to capture that feeling of the real world and how the real world is, is more important than capturing that real world itself. And the most famous author, or I, not author, but the most famous artist from this time period is Picasso, who develops cubism and sort of begins uh, the rise of abstract art. If you know any of Picasso's paintings, you know that there is not a lot of realism in them, but there is a focus on color and sort of messages for the soul, like trying to find that message for a person instead of, uh, you know, depicting reality and depicting some sort of beauty in nature. Uh, they're trying to uh, depict something about society or depict something about the world that they see. Um, and then finally, with music, music always tends to lag just a little bit behind these societal changes. And so with music, we enter into nationalism. And that creates, that makes music a little bit more of a conservative force at this time period. Uh, essentially, an interest in primitive society sparks for folk songs. And because people are interested in folk songs and sort of that beginning of nationalism there, uh, folk songs are used to spur nationalistic movements. The The book specifically points to a Norwegian folk song, um, and it's important to know that Norway was able to gain its independence during this time period. They peacefully uh, sort of were able to break away from uh, Sweden at this point, and they're able to form their own country of Norway. And so with these folk songs, you, you sort of create this nationalist fervor among the people who can break away. In addition to this, we also have just sort of minor impressionists beginning to break into music itself. 
Uh, they kind of create elusive moods and haunting sensations, and they focus on more delicate beauty and sound instead of like the instruments, where as new instruments were being invented, particularly during the Romantic period, period, they were focusing on those new instruments and bringing them into music. Now you're creating more uh, unique ways of depicting emotion and themes throughout music. And ultimately, all of these social changes are kind of accidental. Like, they're not being forced on any of these people, but there are, there because there is so much anxiety at this time, and the general anxiety around this time is so encompassing of all these occupations, people are just sort of reflecting that. And you see that in music, you see that in art, you see that in literature, where the cultural impacts and the cultural influences are reflected in those works. And so ultimately it is the culture that drives, um, you know, these works of art and these fine arts. Um, and that's just sort of, it, it. let me put it this way, it helps you see and get a view of what a society actually uh, values and what a society is feeling when you take a look at these paintings. Along with these social changes, uh, you sort of have a pseudo-political and pseudo-social change with women's rights and the women's rights movement. Um, women first try and fight for uh, progress in marital status and marital rights. So women gained the right to own property in the UK in 1870, in Germany in 1900, and in France in 1884. The Brits legalized divorce for women in 1857, and in France they legalized it in 1884. Um, these Protestant countries, like the UK, France, and Germany, are more willing to adapt to these types of changes, whereas Catholic countries, like Italy and Spain, who are obviously extremely Catholic, um, they see no similar progress to these Protestant countries. Uh, we talked about last chapter how teaching and nursing were increasingly becoming dominated by women. Uh, that trend continues into this time period with Florence Nightingale and Clara Burton, uh, sort of paving that way once more, um, establishing greater trends within those two occupations, and just sort of proving that women uh, can fill the need as uh, education and hospitals become more modern, become, you know, their practices become more developed, that women are both capable and willing to work in these um, positions and help people. Uh, and then most dominantly, we have the women's suffrage movement, especially in the UK, as this enters the mainstream. So we have two competing women uh, fighting for suffrage, and they go at uh, two completely different ways. So Melissa Fawcett is a more uh, moderate candidate. She proposes that women should just prove that they're responsible and respectful enough to men that they should have the right to vote. Um, essentially saying that if women just show that they're respectful and that they're, they'll use their vote responsibly to vote for good politicians who, uh, you know, aren't, don't appeal to just their emotion and just their, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the, the general uh, one, one group uh, led by Millicent Fawcett, who is a more moderate candidate, proposes that women should just uh, prove that they're responsible and respectful enough to have the right to vote, sort of uh, fighting back against that idea that men believe that women are too emotional to vote, that they don't understand politics, that they don't belong in politics. And so uh, 
Fawcett kind of goes after that idea and just tries to sort of get women to show that they are responsible enough to vote and just kind of proving to men that they can vote. Whereas Pankhurst, um, she uses more unusual methods of protest. Her supporters pelt public officials with eggs. They chain themselves to lampposts and fence as a sign of protest. They smash windows. They burn rail cards, rail cars, and uh, most sort of famously, Emily Davidson throws herself in front of the king's horse. Um, she becomes a martyr of the movement and sort of just becomes a symbol of the movement and a symbol of how far women who follow Pankhurst are willing to go to achieve uh, to achieve suffrage and the right to vote. So ultimately, I think you could argue that both methods are relatively effective uh, in tandem. And I think that, you know, both you know, have valuable ideas in this field. So, um, but unfortunately, neither of these women are able to actually make any significant progress in the UK. The only countries that fully legalize uh, women or fully give women the right to vote before World War One are Finland and Norway and a few states within the United States. Uh, they are the only countries to give women the right to vote before World War One. So not a lot of progress, but certainly, um, you know, a growing movement within Europe at this time period. We also have the uh, sort of redefining of what the role of the woman is with the new women idea. Uh, we talked about this last chapter, but I'll touch on it a little bit more. Uh, we have Sutner, who is a um, an Austrian woman. She founds the Austrian Peace Society. It's a... Uh, basically a, a society or a protest against the arms race and just calls for peace. Uh, these women in Austria specifically uh, don't want to see war, mostly because Austria embarrassed after the uh, Austro-Prussian War and, uh, you know, the Italian unification. Sort of see the writing on the wall that Italy, or that Austria, sorry, is too divided and too weak to really take on a power like Russia, who they have competing interests with in the Balkans. And so they propose that Austria should stay uh, at least neutral um, and at, at, you know, the very most should sort of lead the way of, um, you know, finding peace in Europe and finding peaceful diplomatic solutions instead of fighting for war. And then we also have Montessori from Italy, who really emphasizes this growth of, growth of the new women. Uh, she's the first woman to get a medical degree in Italy, and she studies menti mentally handicapped children at uh, the time. She develops new, she develops new teaching methods uh, to help children with learning disabilities and just help children who either aren't interested in learning or have some sort of uh, struggle with learning or interest with learning. So overall, uh, the women's rights movement doesn't gain a lot of massive progress, but they are laying the groundwork for some change and proving that they can uh, not only partake in politics and social life, but that they can actually add to these, uh, you know, political movements and social movements and uh, sort of educational movements. And then from here, let's talk about the specific countries and the specific changes happening within each of the major countries. So starting with the British, British liberals take power from 1906 to 1914, and they're essentially pressured by both trade unions and the Labour Party to accept more, quote, radical changes. They're forced to kind of adopt uh, 
presenting and supporting the minimum wage benefits for workers and collective ownership of uh, different products. Uh, this is mostly because the Fabian Socialists merge with the Labour Party. The Fabian Socialists are essentially, they advocate for socialism through democracy, and so instead of, um, instead of the same uh, very violent, very uh, sort of class warfare-y uh, type of style that Marx favored, um, the Fabian Socialists are more pacifist, and they believe that the best way to reform society is not through violent revolution, but instead uh, sort of incremental change and general progress towards a socialist world. And so the liberals in the British Parliament are led by David Lloyd George. Uh, he again leads from 1906 to 1914. And he abandons laissez-faire economics, mostly through his National Insurance Act of 1911. Uh, this act gives benefits for sick workers and the, and the unemployed, gives compensation for workers' injuries on the job, gives pensions for retirees over 70, which is, you know, essentially uh, Social Security. Uh, he also increases taxes for the upper class, which is extremely unpopular with the House of Lords. And so the House of and so the House of Lords uh, rejects his deals, and um, this sort of prompts Lloyd to take some interesting leniency with the House of Lords um, by reducing their power to obstruct his uh, sort of positions and just sort of abolishing their general control over Parliament, uh, which makes sure that Lloyd will have more power and will be able to pass his reforms that we just talked about. Uh, and because of the removal of the House of Lords, the Liberals are also able to grant Irish Home Rule, which was a sticking point with the House of Lords uh, from the earlier chapter. Uh, they are eventually forced to revoke Irish Home Rule during World War One, and uh, also when I when Ireland is granted Home Rule, uh, Northern Ireland uh, rejects being included. They are not a big fan of being included into this uh, sort of lump. They are not a fan of being lumped into the Irish into the Irish land in general just because they are Protestant uh, and most of Ireland is Catholic and so they uh, really reject the Irish and even today they are still a part of the UK despite being obviously on, on Ireland itself. In Italy we have some short-term stability uh, with some long-term instability being achieved if that makes sense. So essentially uh, the liberal leaders of Italy um, sort of adopt Transformerism, which is where uh, basically a system where the old elite are transformed into sort of a new government that supports uh, certain policies, uh, and that you're able to get them to support these policies through bribes and favors. Uh, so some pretty pol politically shady deals going on in the background of Italian politics, but this does grant uh, some small stability. Uh, to the people, however, long term, it does create uh, sort of normalizing corruption and political favors for votes and for, um, for you know, getting favors done. So overall, some short term success uh, for in trade for some long term success. The socialist workers really reject this uh, sort of master of transformerism, which is what call the uh, Italian president at this time. The socialist workers try and protest, however, and the Italian liberals just kind of, um, well, they propose just saying that if you continue to protest, we'll, get, we'll grant universal male suffrage and uh, social welfare gains, which would completely destroy parliament and the Italian state's ability to pay off um, 
you know, its debts and its trade deficits. So essentially what they do is they try to just like give the socialists everything they want. And the socialists realized that that would completely um, break Italian politics and just kind of ruin, uh, you know, how Italy is currently functioning. So the Italian workers essentially are forced to back down because um, a lot of the proposals would just essentially be a landmine uh, that they'd walk right into. And in addition to this, the Italians also invade Libya to invoke some uh, nationalism and to just sort of show, give a sense of that national stability and national, um, you know, courage. In France, we have the Dreyfus Affair. The Dreyfus Affair is essentially about this Jewish captain. His name is Dreyfus, of course. Um, he is accused uh, by the French government of giving military secrets to the Germans, who are their uh, greatest rival. As we'll see, uh, ever since the Germans took Alsace-Lorraine, the French will, uh, you know, forever will forever try and get Alsace-Lorraine back, um, which they are eventually successful in doing. But anyway, um, essentially Dreyfus is accused of uh, giving military secrets to the Germans on some pretty shady charges. Essentially, the French, after finding uh, this letter um, from a French citizen giving the secrets to the Germans, they compare the handwriting to Dreyfus's. It does not match. But despite this, they just kind of uh, show this to the court, and they say to the court that um, Dreyfus is changing his handwriting as he writes these letters, and he's so sneaky, and he's so, uh, you know, he's such a good spy that he's changing his handwriting um, to try and cover this all up. And for some reason, the court's fine with that. Probably absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Dreyfus is Jewish. And so they exile him from France to French Guiana, um, and eventually, of course, it turns out Dreyfus is innocent, and the French government does absolutely nothing. They find the actual culprit, they have undeniable evidence, irrefutable evidence, that uh, he was guilty, but they decide to kind of let him go and just try and stay face and continue to have Dreyfus exiled from France. Eventually, these documents are released that the French government is uh, covering this all up, and it creates like a, a deep, deep divide within French politics um, that ultimately leads to Dreyfus getting pardoned by the president while admitting, sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, that he did it. So essentially Dreyfus is said like, you can, or essentially Dreyfus is told by the president of France that if you say you're guilty, I'll pardon you. Uh, if you don't say you're guilty, you'll continue to be exiled, which isn't really how laws work, um, but sure. You know, that's just how it goes. But, uh, you know, the small affair, the Dreyfus affair, does have massive ramifications for France uh, in that France becomes far more secularized and that uh, religious discrimination goes down and religious toleration shoots up. Going back to sort of the Enlightenment with Voltaire, religious toleration once again enters sort of a new stage, a more secular state of France. So what we call the radical Republicans, uh, remember that, Republicans in France, they're not like the conservatives like in the United States. They're instead people who form or who support the French Republic instead of a French uh, monarch or a French king. And so these radical Republicans, as they call them, uh, they take charge. They 
uh, seize church lands, they purge anti-Republican officials, they separate the church and state in 1905, and the government ends uh, clerical salaries. And so essentially France completely cuts itself off uh, from any religious identity and any religious influence in preference for a very secular society, which lasts even today. France is extremely secular, um, almost, to a, almost to a worrying point where they ban any show of uh, sort of religious symbols, uh, at least on paper. They ban any form of religious symbols at public education. However, while France is dealing with the Dreyfus Affair and religious toleration, they also fall behind in industrialization. Uh, and falling behind in industrialization presents two problems: they fall behind in economics, and they fall behind in Germ. They fall behind when compared to Germany, which means that, um, you know, they're going to struggle in World War One with a smaller industry. They're not going to be as powerful as the Germans and the German industry. But also, in the more immediate future for them, the workers have less representation, which means that the government really has no incentive uh, for giving workers more voting rights and more uh, sort of workers' rights. They don't get the right to strike, right to unionize. Uh, they don't get a minimum wage or a workers' benefits or workers' compensation. And so the government kind of falls behind as well with social changes that come along with industrialization. And the government brutally suppresses a walkout in 1911, once again, showing that France is sort of falling behind socially when compared to the UK and Germany at this point in time. Speaking of Germany, we have, of course, a lot of tensions in Germany. We have an aggressive, uh, pretty tacticalist Emperor Wil or Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, in Germany. He heightens tensions. He is pretty much everything that Bismarck is not. He is very uncalculating, very, very um, sort of, he, he jumps to kind of the far right and the far left, kind of back and forth, mostly to the far right, as you can imagine. But uh, he says that uh, you know, he gives a speech to his soldiers saying that they must be prepared to kill their mothers, which I can imagine it's not it's not a great applause line, you know, telling people that they need to be prepared to kill their mothers um, to defend the German state. But, you know, so essentially what you have here is a very, uh, very tactless and a very sort of brutish uh, Kaiser on the throne as we enter World War One. Can't imagine how that's going to go bad. Um, in addition to this, we have some very, uh, very intense uh, social changes and political changes. The German industry and urbanization, uh, urbanization populations also grow. This helps the SDP or the uh, Socialist Party in Germany win more votes, and they become the most powerful uh, political party in 1812. Uh, and this is mostly due to their reform to being less. Uh, less revolutionary and more revisionist, and so a lot of uh, more liberal changes out of Germany are going to come from this revisionist view. However, despite being the most powerful, they are not able to grant democracy, which is a huge falling point for them, and essentially uh, the Kaiser is able to stay on the throne all the way up until Germany's defeat in World War I. Sorry for the spoiler if you haven't gotten there yet. Um, and so in general, you have sort of conservatives adopting nationalism, and they increasingly hate the Jews. Who who would imagine that Germany would be so, uh, have such an intense hatred, hatred of the Jews? Um, and the 
and the liberal politicians, mainly from the Socialist Party, call for democracy. And um, one of these parties is successful and hint, hint, it's not the liberals. Uh, in addition to the nationalism spreading in Germany, we have nationalism spreading in Austria-Hungary, which is actually interesting because Germany, uh, for Germany, nationalism is a unifying uh, sort of force. For Austria-Hungary, however, nationalism is a dividing force. And so when Austria grants universal male suffrage in 1907, the nationalist figures from all the separate ethnicities living within uh, Austria and living within Hungary sort of break parliament. Uh, the Austrian parliament uh, has pretty much no ability to pass anything because uh, all these ethnic minorities making up Austria use parliament to basically just protest and grandstand about how they need independence right now, and they block all other bills. So essentially, the prime minister has to rely mostly on imperial emergency decrees, and this shows a breakdown of Austrian political society and the political elites unable to decide, and that's really going to hurt Austria as we get into World War I. It's the nationalist forces living in Austria are going to severely weaken them and sort of lead to their defeat during uh, World War I. Uh, and then in Hungary, we also have a full independence movement taking place. Um, remember that Hungary is sort of, the, they're in a dual monarchy. So essentially Hungary, while having some political autonomy, is not entirely free from the Austrians. So the Hungarian king recognizes that an independence movement would uh, be absolutely crushed by the Austrians and would probably result in his head getting chopped off. And so he threatens to give universal male suffrage to uh, the Austrian parliament and the, or not the Austrian parliament, the Hungarian parliament, excuse me. He threatens to give them uh, universal male suffrage which would completely destroy Parliament's power, like in Austria. And so Parliament backs down from independence and they fall in line. So Austria-Hungary completely divided, um, both Austria and Hungary unable to really work out any differences with more radical figures, mostly nationalist figures, making up a lot of the political parties. And then finally, in Russia, we have industrialization being led by the Minister of Finance, Sergei White, he sees Russian industry as a major strength for the Russian Empire, so he builds railroads across Russia, most importantly the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which is similar to the Transcontinental Railroad of the United States. Um, he also fosters economic tariffs uh, to encourage Russian domestic industry to continue to grow, and that uh, provides a rapid growth of steel and coal, mostly in modern-day uh, Ukraine, for the Russian Empire. Industrial growth also spurs some uh, poor working con working conditions as well, as we saw in the UK and Germany and France and Belgium and pretty much any country that industrializes. Uh, the first step is a is a lot of poverty and a lot of struggle between the working class and the you know the bourgeoisie, as Marx would call them. And so this leads to a lot of socialists or Marxists uh, being suppressed by the Russian government as increasingly more and more people support socialism or Marxism uh, as a sort of uh, solution to their poverty and their squalor. Uh, and the suppression of these two groups ultimately leads to them having to resort to terrorism and revolution, which is exemplified in basically a Russian uh, civil war once again, 
essentially, uh, we have a defeat of the Ru in the Russo-Japanese War. The Russians don't fare too well. Uh, Japanese, uh, the Japanese had been uh, industrializing for a long time at this point, and they had actually surpassed Russia in industrialization. Their army completely, uh, completely destroyed the Russian army, and Russia was kind of embarrassed because this is the first time a an Asian nation had beaten a European nation in a head-to-head -head conflict. And so, with uh, a defeat in the Russo-Japanese War, as well as a famine, poverty, Bloody Sunday, which is when uh, basically a priest and his uh, sort of a congregation were walking in St. Petersburg. They had a letter uh, requesting for uh, Tsar Nicholas II to make some reforms to help them. On the way to uh, Tsar Nicholas's palace, his guards opened fire and killed the priest and the congregation in sort of a mis uh, miscommunication, I guess, or misunderstanding. Ultimately, you know, it's kind of a massive disaster to shoot a priest and his congregation, and that doesn't go over well with the people, as well as the ethnic minorities living inside Russia. All of these groups sort of uh, rise up, spark a revolution, and they're only put down through uh, Tsar, Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas II's uh, October Manifesto, which creates the Duma, sort of bringing back that local assembly, and the first small step, but still a step, towards a more local democracy and democracy in Russia, and he also grants civil liberties for the people. So now with every nation taken care of, let's zoom out and take a look at imperialism. Essentially, a new version of imperialism takes place uh, during this time period um, with nationalism, ra or with nationalism, racism, and economics mostly leading, uh, leading empires to grow their empires and expand the number of colonies they have. Um, you sort of see this new way of colonization, and you also see the the new areas that Europeans are increasingly more interested in colonizing, particularly Africa. And so the UK and Germany mostly uses colonization to limit uh, each other, limit their rivals in trade. They see ports and uh, coaling stations on the coast as important uh, to refuel and resupply uh, their ships uh, as they trade across the world. And it's also seen that nations who don't colonize are just generally weak and unable to push others around as much as uh, some of these larger countries are able to. In addition uh, to these changes, uh, the media and education also bolster this idea that nations need colonies. Maps and geography are taught in schools to bring about national pride. Newspapers printed art and pictures and letters from different colonial uh, from different colonies to sort of bolster support for taking them over. Uh, soldiers and colonial companies also sort of made it fun, made it a game. Uh, they used the media mostly to uh, paint themselves as heroes, and they also used literature and plays uh, to paint heroes out of colonizers and uh, sort of played onto this white man's burden, which we'll get into uh, right now. So with social Darwinism developing, we talked about that with the uh, s sort of science being uh, adapted for uh, social changes. Uh, social Darwinism essentially is used as, as sort of a um, 
sort of an excuse for suppressing the black and Asian populations and just sort of saying that it's acceptable to do it because they would do it to us if, if the roles were reversed. And so um, we also sort of enter into this white man's burden, which we talked about in APUSH, and I'm sure you remember it, but in case you don't remember it, uh, the white man's burden is essentially this idea that the white man is just so, so... Um, you know, so distressed. They have so much on their backs. They have to support all these societies, and it's their duty. It's their God-given duty um, to, you know, send out missionaries from the church to convert people to your religion. Uh, these colonizers also need to civilize the colonized people and give them good morals and good behaviors and good manners. Um, and we need uh, you know, it kind of excuses colonies for religious reasons and humanitarian reasons. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, there weren't some people who wanted um, to spread their religion, uh, like genuinely wanted to spread their religion to civilize, quote, civilize these people. Um, I'm not saying that's, you know, there was nobody, but I am saying that it was not, it was not the reason that these countries, um, you know, took over so many colonies. They, uh, they did it mostly and pretty much entirely for economic reasons and economic exploitation of these people. Um, and so, you know, the white man's burden is just another sort of justification, a more, a, a nicer way to um, you know, lightly put it on people who might have some sort of moral questions about whether or not it's okay to uh, essentially enslave entire continents of people uh, for your empires. Um, and then kind of going back to it, I talked about this before, the economic imperialism also really matters. The states and the people conquer these resources with industrialization um, playing such a heavy impact right now in Europe. They need a lot of raw resources. They need tin, they need oil, steel, cotton, etc. from all these colonies. And so as they take over more colonies, they get more resources. And, you know, different colonies um, obviously have different resources. And so depending on which colony you get, you see sort of the nation uh, trending towards that way. Like the British in South Africa take over gold and diamonds. And so they become a, uh, very rich. Whereas uh, the Belgians in uh, the Congo, the Belgian Congo, is very rich in rubber and very rich in, um, what else are they rich in? They're rich in cobalt. And cobalt's not very important uh, during this time period, but it is important modern day because it's used in pretty much every computer. Um, you know, you see some still remnants of imperialism, but mostly with the Chinese uh, taking over and buying a lot of uh, a lot of the Congo's cobalt mines, but that's an entirely different story. I'm sorry. Uh, essentially, you see um, the economic imperialism of these countries uh, taking them over for their raw resources and investing in building up infrastructure around these places. Not specifically in the colonies, just mostly, um, you know, around these areas. So like, for example, in South Africa, the British build a great infrastructure from their ports to the diamond mines. And that's about it. <laughs> you know, there's not really an investment in the African people themselves. And so there's a lot of exploitation there. Of course there is. Um, and a lot of socialists also call this out. Lenin uh, kind of gets his rise in saying that capitalism is imperialism. He says that uh, capitalism's goal is the subjugation of colonies, and this is just the next 
sort of logical extent to which Lenin, or to which capitalism will go. You know, once capitalism runs out of, um, you know, the poor and the middle class to exploit, they have to look across the world for more people to exploit, is something that Lenin uh, would say. And so this sort of results in what is called the scramble for Africa, as Europeans increasingly colonize most of Africa. In 1875, they have about 11% of the African continent under their control. Um, in just 27 years, in uh, 1902, they have over 90% of the continent under their control. So that really just goes to show you how quickly this change actually takes place. Um, and so Europeans beforehand mostly just were looking at ports and trade. Uh, they just wanted to capture enough ports where they could send their boats around the continent, land, resupply, and then continue, uh, you know, continue off and trade with other nations. But as nationalism and industrialization push for more control, uh, nations have to take a more vested interest. So in South Africa, the UK established control of the ports in 1814, and eventually, um, as South Africa becomes more lucrative for the UK, uh, Cecil Rhodes, who was the colonial governor of the colony, uh, essentially pushes more of more British people inland for the golden diamonds that I was talking about in South Africa. And this essentially ignites a war between the Dutch settlers, who settled there um, when South Africa was a Dutch colony, uh, between the British forces, who are there right now as a, as a British colonizing force. And that starts the Boer War. And um, the Boer War is proves to be pretty deadly. About uh, 22,000 British people die. And this is broadcast back to the British people. Uh, this war uh, sort of becomes unpopular as the, publish, as the public outcries about the concentration camps that a lot of the uh, Dutch people are put into. And it also shows just the general cost of maintaining an empire is going to be high, not only in cost, but also in lives. And that, kind of going back to the white man's burden, it's going to cost a lot for these people to justify uh, kind of taking over these colonies and exploiting these people. In addition to this, they also fight the Zulu War. Uh, the Zulu people are actually really interesting. I found that their kind of philosophy and their general war tactics are... Uh, very simple, but they're also very, uh, very modern. And you would sort of assume that, uh, you know, uh, if you take a look at their, particularly their war tactics, you would sort of look at them and just be like, yeah, obviously, but they're just so simple to explain to somebody that they are very effective. And so if you have the time, I would look into the Zulu people, because I think they're quite, quite a fascinating, cult fascinating culture. And it's, uh, you know, obviously a shame that the British decided that, um, you know, the Zulu people were uncivilized and that the likely, the best conclusion for uncivilized people is a mass genocide, which is what they do to the Zulu people. And so ultimately, um, South Africa sort of ends as a British dominion by 1910, but it also just kind of shows that, uh, you know, the UK has massive ambitions. Cecil Rhodes uh, proposes this idea of a Cape uh, Cape to Cairo colony, essentially a uh, from Cape Town to Cairo, which is in Egypt. He wants a colony that spans uh, the length of the continent from the very north of Africa to the very south of Africa. 
and proposes that the UK should take a more vested interest in taking over these colonies. Also, Cecil Rhodes has uh, one of the worst quotes from European history, saying that he believes his race is the finest race to ever walk on the world, which is, uh, well, you know, very European of him, very British of him, but uh, certainly shows... Uh, shows the time he's living in and shows the justifications that these people are using with this idea of like uh, social Darwinism, that they are truly the best people, um, which, of course, they're not. I just want to make that very clear. They're not. The British people are not the best people. I don't know how they convince themselves of that. Uh, they have horrible teeth. Uh, anyway, <laughs> back to the colonization of Africa. Uh, the French and the Portuguese next take an interest in colonies after the British do. The French and the Portuguese, however, mostly use colonies as sort of a show of national spirit. The Portuguese take over Angola, Guinea-Bissau, and Mozambique, uh, which are large swaths of land, but Angola is not a particularly like resource-rich environment. It's mostly mountains. Um, it's just along the shore that is... Um, mostly valuable. So by taking so much land, and you see this with the French uh, sort of colonization of the Sahara Desert as well, by taking so much land, these colonies uh, sort of give a boost to the national spirit and national pride of the French and Portuguese citizens. And just when you look at a map, you, you know, you notice them. Portugal, it's a little small uh, compared to all the other states around it. And, you know, you you kind of forget about Portugal, as I have. <laughs> um, we don't talk about Portugal a lot. And so it kind of makes sense for them to adopt such large uh, sort of colonies to try and get their name back on the map and try and show that they are still existing. You know, they're still here. Um, especially after, you know, they were the first uh, civilization to colonize in Asia. So it kind of makes sense that they are so interested in colonization. But like I said before, building off the French, they also colonize a lot of land, but not for economic reasons like the British or Germans. They colonize mostly for national spirit. They colonize a massive, massive portion of the Sahara Desert, which is obviously not very important. There's some oil in the Sahara Desert, but not a lot. Um, but it mostly shows, uh, you know, the just the power of France itself and how large France is uh, when you see it on a map. And I would encourage you to have a map up for this of uh, sort of uh, the scramble for Africa, just so you know what I'm talking about, because it's very difficult to explain it uh, without some sort of picture. And then sort of building on Cecil Rhodes' idea of a uh, from Cape Town to Cairo colony, uh, the British uh, use a unstable Egyptian sort of time to take the land. They capture the Suez Canal and Sudan and colonize much of the area. The Italians follow suit by taking uh, Ottoman-controlled Libya, and Leopold II takes control of much of the Congo. Uh, his treatment is absolutely brutal. You know, it says something when other racists say, hold on, you're being a little too racist here. Leopold II I would encourage you to take a look at take a look at what he says and what he does in the Congo, but honestly, I'm not sure 
if I can really say that in good faith, I don't know if I'd encourage anybody to, to take a look at what he did. Uh, he's truly, truly uh, just one of the worst people for this time period and one of the worst people of European history. And that says a lot because there are some bad people in European history. But Leopold II is up there. His exploitation of the Congo is absolutely just horrible. And you can see it even today, the effects that, um, you know, the utter destruction that the Belgians and, frankly, Leopold II, mostly, because it is Leopold II who owns the Congo, mostly. Um, you know, you can just see it even today with the uh, sort of instability that's happening in Congo, mostly uh, eastern Congo, that is particularly unstable. And then the Germans also convert to imperialism. Bismarck is originally not much of an imperialist. He doesn't see the need for Germany to have an empire. But as the scramble for Africa is taking place, he eventually kind of gives in and uh, leads Germany in, into taking Tanzania, uh, Namibia, Cameroon, and Togo. And so ultimately, you see that a lot of Africa is colonized at this point. And the impact of Africa is essentially that the UK, France, Great Britain, or the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, and Belgium had pretty much all of Africa except for Ethiopia and Liberia. Liberia, as we talked about in APUSH, is uh, kind of a US colony, not really. I mean, it's it's protected by the United States, I guess is the best way to put it. It's a, it's a place for former slaves to return home to if they wanted to return home to Africa. And Ethiopia is a uh, sort of powerful enough place where they're actually able to resist um, the colonization of Africa. The Italians attempt to take them over, but of course, they're Italians, they're incompetent with war. They're too, you know, you know, the Italians, they got the pasta, they don't have the war. That's, that's all I'm going to say. The, uh, the Ethiopians end up beating them. Pretty embarrassing for the Italian army. And so Ethiopia is actually able to resist the um, scramble for Africa. Uh, however, a lot of Africa is unable to uh, kind of avoid this complete massacre and genocide of their cultural history, of their social history. And a lot of them are forced pretty much into a brutal subjugation and capturing of their lands. Um, a lot of African cultures, there's sort of a divide in Africa, I guess is what I would say. So in Africa, some cultures accept political rule. Um, most, I, I guess I'd say most cultures accept political rule. A lot of these cultures see the political rule as sort of acceptable. Like they had always sort of been occupied by another uh, sort of African uh, colonizing power or African empire. So a lot of these empires accept the political rule. However, they do not accept, of course, the economic and cultural changes that were forced upon them. Um, the African people just wanted to kind of live their life how they were used to it. And the, uh, you know, the Europeans enslaving most of their culture and uh, treating them like barbarians or treating them like, you know, uh, subhumans was obviously not preferable to them. So most of the poor and middle class dislike the colonial rule, uh, but they do admire the sort of enlightened enlightenment ideas of freedom and liberty, uh, even though they are not applied to the African colonies. And so 
you sort of see this like double standard where like Europe values its freedom and liberty, but doesn't grant it to the African colonies. And so a lot of African independence movements are going to build themselves off of the Enlightenment and this idea of political autonomy, freedom, uh, freedom of speech, uh, and freedom of protest. And so they use a lot of ideas sort of uh, invented or brought to light during the Enlightenment uh, when they push for their uh, independence, as they increasingly do pretty much right after a lot of these colonizing forces get there. However, they do not see success until after World War II. Um, and so most of these, like I said, most of these political parties push for enlightenment. Some of them begin to flirt with this idea of independence, particularly in India, you see this, which I think is a great time to start talking about, to start moving away from the scramble of Africa and to Asia. So with Asia, there is less of a scramble because a lot of Asia is already taken. The British had already established control of Australia and India beforehand. And a lot of gold and land in Australia and the cotton fields of India had pushed them further and further inland, uh, taking over a lot of uh, India and Australia, making Australia a penal colony, making India basically, uh, you know, what they refer to as the crown jewel of the British Empire. Um, and eventually, you know, India is transferred from the British East India Company into directly the UK crown. So essentially Parliament takes over that company and of Queen Victoria is uh, kind of made the first Empress of India. Um, and so Britain takes over a lot of Asia. And who had been missing from the Scramble of Africa were the Russians. The Russians did not take a uh, place in the Scramble for Africa. That's because they're too busy taking, play, or taking uh, part in the Scramble for Asia. So the Russians first conquer Siberia, and eventually, actually, they conquer Alaska, but that is sold to the United States during the Grant administration. Uh, I'm sure you remember that. Um, so most of the Siberians are Russian by the 1900s, just due to uh, sort of emigration patterns within the Russian society. So a lot of uh, Siberians are Russian at this point. However, that was not always true when Russia first colonized it. And then the Russians decide to strike south. They capture the North Black Sea from the Ottomans, uh, capturing a lot of land around Ukraine and Georgia and just the, um, the Caucasus Mountains. They also capture Turkestan, or they capture the sort of Stan nations around the uh, Caspian Sea, which are very rich in natural gas and oil. And they also uh, sort of establish Afghanistan as a buffer state with the UK. Russia and the UK, ever since the Crimean War, have been kind of massive enemies. And so they establish a lot of uh, nations between them because they don't want a direct conflict between them. So they establish uh, the country of Afghanistan with the modern borders of Afghanistan today in the image of creating some sort of boundary between Russia and India. And so that sort of separates them and makes sure that they are not enemies when it comes around to World War One. Then with China, after Essentially, China tries to resist a lot of these changes. They resist the cultural changes, and they resist a lot of the economic changes, not wanting to trade with the Europeans. However, the British uh, use an interesting tactic. They, um, they get the Chinese addicted to opium, and the, um, essentially the British 
by fighting these opium wars, is what they're called, literally called opium wars. The British try to get the Chinese addicted to opium. The Chinese government cracks down on this and then says, hey, stop getting our people addicted to opium. And so the UK declares war on them. They fight over, uh, essentially, whether or not the UK can get the Chinese people addicted to opium. China loses this war. They fight another war, uh, the second opium war. This time, the UK and France team up to beat up uh, the Chinese, and China is essentially pried open by the West. And uh, soon, Japan, Germany, the UK, France, Russia, and the United States all establish trade with the Chinese. And if you remember from, I believe it's, is it the McKinley administration? I think it's the McKinley administration. They have the open door policy with uh, with China, which essentially says that none of those countries that take over portions of China, can restrict the trade of another nation. And so, uh, very violently and very suddenly, China, uh, despite trying to resist these social and economic changes, is subjugated by a lot of Europe and forced to trade with them, uh, mostly because they want the, that Chinese porcelain and that China, which is why it's called China, by the way. I, I think I recently learned that. I think that's so stupid that, uh, you know, expensive plates and expensive silverware is literally called China because it's from China. Anyway, moving to Japan now. Japan also sort of tries to isolate itself from the world until 1854. Japan sort of sees what's happening in China and realizes that if they try and resist, they're going to meet the same fate as the Chinese did. They're going to get beat up by the West. And so when the United States demands trade with uh, Japan, Japan reluctantly agrees, although they do agree. And Japan, from that point forward, is sort of embarrassed that they're kind of forced by the world stage, uh, forced into the world stage, forced to trade with all these nations. And so they rapidly industrialize. Very quickly, in about 50 years, they industrialize, completely change their system. They move literally from like the samurai running their nation to an emperor running their nation. They colonize the Korean Peninsula. They go to war with China and Russia and beat both of them, capture Korea, annex Korea in 1910, and pretty much show that like, they pretty much like ask the Europeans, if you want to play that game, we can play that game. And so Japan, rapidly industrializing, rapidly having a lot of cultural growth and cultural change uh, to match pace with the Europeans at this point. In Southeast Asia, we have a lot of uh, the UK and France making some uh, making some moves to capture colonies. The British capture Burma, or modern-day Myanmar, and Malaysia, the French uh, annex French Indochina, which is modern-day Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. And the British and French establish Thailand as um, a neutral ground between them. Essentially, uh, the British and the French don't want to have, like with Russia and the UK, the British and French don't want to have a border with each other with their colonies because they hate each other. The UK has a lot of hatred for a lot of countries, if you haven't noticed. But they essentially let Thailand remain free because the UK and France don't want to have that tension between them, and they don't want to have that border. And so across Asia, we have three different responses, three very different responses uh, to this uh, sort of or sort of uh, imperialist nature that the Europeans take. So in China, 
They're embarrassed by their defeat. They rebel. They have the Boxer Rebellion, which basically uh, just completely ends in disaster. The Boxer Rebellion and the rebels try to kill the Catholic converts that the Europeans had made. Uh, they try and kill foreigner, foreigners, they try and kill a German envoy, and they try and kill railroad workers. Um, the international response around this unites pretty much all the forces that divided up China into one coalition, and they basically just beat on China up again, beat up China again, and this weakens China again, and they're forced to sign another unfair treaty uh, where they open up even more of their country. So this rebellion uh, trying to kick people out actually brings people even further into China. Japan goes the complete opposite way and adopts Western ways. They copy the British Navy and the German Army. They copy the American industrial innovations. And they copy the French bureaucracy and the French freedoms. I don't know, like, they doesn't really talk about what freedoms they adopt from France, um, but essentially, like, sort of this... Enlightenment freedom, this religious toleration and whatnot from the French, I imagine, is what they adopt. And so essentially, the Japanese, having the advantage of coming like second after all these nations paved the way, they can pick and choose which ones they want to adopt, and they obviously adopt the most um, successful of them. So the British Navy, which is the most powerful navy, they adopt that. The German Army, which is the most powerful army, they adopt that. The American industry, which is the most powerful industry, they adopt that. And the French bureaucracy and freedoms, which is, I mean, it's difficult to evaluate which one is the most free country or the most bureaucratically best run country. But I think it's safe to say that the French, having dealt with a lot of revolutions, had a pretty tight, uh, uh, had a pretty tight internal policy that would fight against revolutions at this point. And so Japan kind of becomes like a mix a mix match of all these Western ideas, and Japan completely goes the opposite way. Japan was very traditional, very uh, conservative, didn't want to change at all, and then in 50 years they do take this complete uh, 180 and change everything. And then in India, India also responds to the British changes. Uh, there's some economic and cultural changes, but it's mostly exploitation of the Indian people. Most of the populace remains poor and illiterate. I think they said like up to 90% of the of the Indian people are illiterate at this point, and they're also beaten down. A lot of Indians suffer uh, directly from the exploitation, from beatings, from exploitation. So it's just really bad. Also, the local economies are completely destroyed by British trade. Uh, the British essentially flood Indian markets with their own cheap manufactured industrial goods, which makes sure that any local economy uh, has a really difficult time competing with those cheap prices, and the manufactured goods are just so much easier and so much uh, more quick to produce than, uh, you know, handcrafted goods. And so all of this exploitation eventually calls, or eventually forces Indians to form the Indian National Congress, which calls for independence after the 1919 revolts that try and establish uh, Indian independence. And then finally, let's move into, the, into setting the stage for World War I. So essentially, World War I sort of uh, requires a shifting of alliances and the shifting of a lot of foreign policy. And you see that with Bismarck. Bismarck tries to ally, or tries to ally with 
Russia and Austria to deter a war. This creates the Three Emperors League and eventually fails. This is mostly due to Austria-Hungary and Russia having a rivalry in the Balkans and not being able to agree on anything. And so let's dive into the Balkans. So the Balkans, if you know anything about them, very divisive, a lot of ethnic tensions, as you can imagine. And so that's essentially what World War I is. It's the ethnic tensions uh, kind of spilling out into all of Europe. And so we've got some problems rise as the Ottomans fall. The Austrians and Russians want to compete for the land in the Balkans, and that ultimately pushes them very close to war multiple times. But it's Germany, mostly Bismarck, who tries to hold them back from that war, pulling them back right before they're about to uh, declare war on each other. Um, eventually, Serbia and Montenegro declare war uh, on the Ottoman Empire and declare their independence. They are defeated, but Russia intervenes and wins with the permission of Austria-Hungary, and they establish uh, sort of the independence of Serbia and Montenegro, but they also establish a large Bulgarian puppet in the area. Germany, sort of recognizing that um, Bulgaria probably shouldn't be that large, and uh, Russia having uh, such a large puppet right next to the Ottoman Empire and basically controlling so much of the Balkans is a bad idea. Germany rips, rips up this treaty and makes a brand new one, pretty much without the Russians' permission. I don't know how they get this done. Um, but essentially, the new German treaty reduces the size of the Bulgarian state, giving more land uh, back to the Ottoman Empire. Montenegro, Serbia, and Romania are given their independence, and Bosnia and Herzegovina are placed under Austrian occupation. With, and this is important, with the explicit rule that Austria is not allowed to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina. You can't have Bosnia and Herzegovina, you're just supposed to occupy them. You're never going to guess what Austria does. Austria, obviously, occupies Bosnia or occupies Bosnia and Herzegovina, and then moves to annex them, which is how we get World War I. But yeah, that jumps a little ahead of myself. So essentially, Russia reacting to Germany just ripping up their treaty, kind of, uh, you know, ripping up Russia's sovereignty at this point. Uh, they're mad at Germany, and they decide to leave the Three Emperors League and this means that Germany will uh, make the Triple Alliance, which they form with uh, themselves, obviously, with Austria-Hungary, and with the Italians. And that Triple Alliance of sort of the Central European states is kind of going to be World War One. I. I mean, with Italy, it kind of gets complicated because essentially the Triple Alliance is a defensive war. Italy argues that Austria-Hungary declared an offensive war. And so... Um, you know, kind of complicated there, but the Italians essentially don't join World War One until one side can offer them a little bit more than the other one can. And so Italy, kind of with this vague treaty, is able to avoid getting pulled into World War One with the Germans and Austria and Austro-Hungarians. But Bismarck, uh, ever the smart planner and competent uh, leader tries to ally with the Russians, but he is fired by uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, remember? Uh, he's very uh, uncalculating, he's very brash, he is not much of a thinker, unlike Bismarck, and so when he fires Bismarck, he completely upsets the Russians, breaks off any treaty with them, and by 1894, uh, 
Russia is so far away from German from Germany being an ally that they agree to ally with France and agree that they will not back down that if Russia that you know basically the Russians are so upset that they have been you know stomped stomped over in the Balkans and they have repeatedly had their sovereignty um you know attacked and that repeatedly their treaties keep getting ripped up that their alliances are uh, completely pointless and so the next time something happens Russia and France they are not going to take it anymore. In addition to this, the Germans and the British kind of get into this uh, sort of contentious standoff in economics. The British see Germany as their chief rival. The Germans, I mean, it's kind of hard to say who the Germans hate at this point. The Germans kind of just hate everybody. Um, and so the Germans kind of essentially pu push the UK into allying with France. And that's a big deal because the British and French, they've been fighting for a long time. Remember, and please remember, the British and French fought a year, fought a 100-year-long war. Do you know how long a 100 years are? Do you know how long it takes you, if you're in the fourth generation of warriors, to think, oh yeah, this is a good idea to fight? That's how much the British and French hate each other, okay? They will destroy each other before they let the other win. They hate each other, and so... Uh, allowing them to ally is maybe Germany's greatest weakness besides uh, allowing wow. Russia and France are to ally. And that creates a, uh, a two-front war, which is going to completely destroy the Germans uh, twice. It's going to destroy the Germans twice. And increasingly, what did I say before? The Balkans, just full of crises and ethnic tensions. So when Austria moves to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, this upsets the Serbians and and their hopes of kind of establishing a larger Serbian empire. Uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina have a large Serbian population in them, and so Serbia was kind of hoping that maybe they could take a little bit of that land. Um, but they also worried that Austria, if they're willing to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, they're probably willing to annex Montenegro. And if they're willing to annex Montenegro, Maybe they're willing to annex Serbia. And so Serbia kind of goes through this uh, intense fear of, like, we're next. We're next. We have to prepare. Um, and that's going to set the stage for Archduke Franz Ferdinand to get shot and, you know, killed and breaking off World War I. But um, essentially, that upsets Serbia so much that uh, the Russians, sort of hating the Austrians themselves, they agree to enter a military pact with Serbia and to protect them as the Slavics. The Russians see themselves as sort of the big brother of the Slavic people, that it's Russia's job to protect the Slavic people, and that, um, you know, the abuses of Germany and the Austrians against the Slavic people is unacceptable, and Russia's not going to take it anymore. So essentially, what you've got here is Serbia and Russia allying, and then Russia being a part of a larger alliance with France, and then France being in a larger alliance with the UK. And you, so you can see that domino effect there, that if someone, hypothetically Austria-Hungary, were to declare war on Serbia, then Serbia would call in Russia, and Russia would call in France, and France would call in the UK, creating a very large war, potentially a, a, a war that encompasses the world. Um, and so... This kind of creates a lot of tension, but in 1912, just two years before the war, uh, the Serbians, Bulgarians, Montenegrins, and Greeks all allied to beat up the Ottomans in the First Balkan War.
they are unable to agree on an alliance, mostly over the Macedonian territory uh, that Greece wants and the Albanian territory of Serbia. And so Serbia, Greece, and the Ottomans, the, sorry, so Serbia, Greece, the Ottoman Empire, and Romania all attack Bulgaria, beat up Bulgaria in the Second Balkan War, and the Greeks and Serbians expand. But the Serbians don't get everything they want. Essentially, the uh, Austro-Hungarians, when they draw up the, the map, they give uh, Albania its independence without giving the land to Serbia, and Serbia wanted a port very badly. They wanted some Albanian land, Albanian land for a navy and a port for trade, and they don't get it, and they see this as a very, they see it as sort of upsetting them, um, and they vow to have revenge upon the Austrians. And so in the London conference, everybody kind of walks away sort of not fully resolved. Uh, the Ottomans still lose quite a bit of land. The Bulgarians kind of lost a lot of land to Serbia uh, and get beat up by the Romanians. So they have a vendetta against the Serbians and Romanians, who are kind of allies with Russia. And so you can see how this complex web of treaties and alliances, the Triple Entente, the Triple Alliance, Serbia and Bulgaria and the Ottomans and the Greeks hating all of each other and the Balkans sort of being uh, what Bismarck calls a, a powder keg. Um, you can see how the Balkans are the ideal place if you wanted to start a world war at this, at this era. And so when Serbia and the Russians leave the London conference, they both vow to get revenge on the Austrians, and they both uh, agree to avenge the Serbian people and this disgrace that Serbia has been dealt. And so this essentially leads the French, British, and Russians to agree not to back down next time it happens. And next, time's, next time it happens will be, um, you know, the last time it happens, the last time uh, these three great powers, as well as Serbia, um, you know, allow themselves to be uh, walked over by these other nations. And so, you know, that sets up the stage for World War One with France, the UK, and Russia all agreeing to not back down no matter what, and Serbia having a lot of tension with the Austrians. And so, you know, that, that is basically uh, World War One being set up perfectly. And ultimately, you know, I think I'm just going to end this just with Bismarck's uh, one of my favorite quotes quotes from Bismarck, he said that uh, he doesn't know when World War One would start, but he knows that it's uh, going to be somewhere in those dang Balkans. He doesn't quite say dang. Um, it's going to be somewhere in those dang Balkans. Um, and he compares the Balkans and the leaders of the Balkan Empire, uh, uh, the leaders of the Balkan nations, to a bunch of leaders smoking in a powder in a room of powder keg and gunpowder. So. Um, ultimately, I think Bismarck was pretty right. He predicts World War One. I. I think I think he he predicts it, and he's like two months off from the start of World War, uh, World War One. So Bismarck, the masterful tactician, um, always able to see, always three steps ahead of his uh, allies and five steps ahead of his enemies. Um, but unfortunately, dies just before World War One. So. Uh, not able to kind of steer Germany in, in its final moments. So I hope you learned something new from this podcast, and I hope uh, you'll come back for the next one. It's going to be exciting, World War One.
and I hope um, you have a fantastic day. I don't normally say that, but oh, I hope you do have a fantastic day now that I think about it. Um, goodbye.